right numbers or uh, how not to get to the promised land. I'm on page 109, uh, where it simply says at the top, numbers. Uh, The book divides into three parts. Uh, People are kind of uh, agreed on that, though they sometimes vary as precisely where they put the divisions. But you'll see, as I've laid it out, numbers 1 to 10, which begins with a census... Is, is about preparations for the journey. Numbers 11 to 25 is how not to get to the promised land. And numbers 26 to 36, beginning again with a census, is preparations for life in the land. Uh, we're still at Sinai. Uh, we've been at Sinai through the second half uh, of Exodus and all the way through Leviticus. And we're still at Sinai through the first nearly a third of the book of Numbers. Though the difference and the justification for the division between Leviticus and Numbers uh, is that the opening part of Numbers is looking forward. It's still there at Sinai with God um, giving, giving instructions to Moses for how things are to be, um, but it's about how, the, how the, the journey is to work out. So the ten chapters are about preparations for the journey. Um, they are full of um, instructions on God's part as to what's to happen. Uh, and with the Israelites saying, oh yeah, we'll do that, oh yeah, we'll do that. Um, the Israelites did so, they did just as the Lord commanded Moses. I see it says at the end of chapter 1, for instance, the end of chapter 2, the Israelites did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Um, End of chapter 3, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is too good to be true, is it not? Yes, it's too good to be true. Too right. Uh, Instructions and apparent compliance. Um, There's um, uh, an idealism uh, about these opening chapters, uh, but there are a, a, a lot of warnings about how the future may turn out. Um, and so it's both an encouraging but also uh, a worrying account of the preparations for the journey. The journey begins uh, at the end of chapter 10. Um, and chap- uh, and th- from the end of chapter 10 through to chapter 25, uh, it's, uh, the book is dominated by accounts uh, of... Um, the people's resistance to God. Uh, one or two of people in their postings acutely asked, um, well, why is there so much stress on the disobedience of the people and on God's anger in these chapters? This is very different, particularly, not least in its portrait of God getting angry with people, um, from what you read elsewhere in the Torah. What's going on here? Um, and I think people were looking for a... Um, Uh, an answer in terms of who who Israel was or something, or who God is, what seems to me to be more more the way to look at it is to see this as another example of the way in which at different points the Torah will focus on an issue in order to be able to um, give expansive treatment to an issue. So in uh, the beginning part of Exodus in the account of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, then there's um, a discussion of the theology of God's relationship with somebody like Pharaoh and the relationship between divine sovereignty uh, and the responsibility of a ruler. 
or in the account of Israel's uh, disobedience at Sinai in chapters 32 to 34, I've suggested to you that there are two theological issues being wrestled with in those chapters. There's one that's to do with what do we mean when we talk about the presence of God? And the other one is, how, how how does God deal with the sinfulness of the people of God? Um, how does God uh, handle that? What's the relationship between uh, mercy and discipline um, and so on? And the, the way in which the Torah works is by focusing from time to time on some theological issue like that. It reminds you again that the reason for having the Torah uh, is not in order for the people who are uh, going through this story to have their story, because they don't need it, because they're there. Um, the, the Torah is written not for them, but as Paul points out, for people who come later, for people to learn from. Uh, and so the way in which it will focus on, a partic- on an issue uh, like that is an example of the way in which the Torah is written for later generations to learn from. Uh, and I uh, imagine the same is true about the way in which these middle chapters of, of, of Numbers work. Uh, in the way they talk, they keep talking about Israelite rebellion and they keep talking about the wrath of God. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Israel was particularly more rebellious or particularly more on the receiving end of the wrath of God in these years than in lots of other years, but that um, the material makes it possible to discuss uh, those issues in this particular context in a concerted way. It does, though, it does though at the same time, um, lead into or imply um, a theological judgment uh, about Israel's position in relation to God and in relation to the fulfilment of God's purpose uh, and their position in the promised land. And at the beginning of that um, section of my page on Numbers 11 to 25, I've referred to Psalm 95, which closes, Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me and put me to the proof though they'd seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, they do not regard my ways. Therefore in my anger I swore, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the psalm is utilising the stories in Exodus and Numbers uh, in the same way that later on Paul uh, will in 1 Corinthians 10. And it's also, uh, and the psalm in turn uh, is then taken up in Hebrews as part of an extensive um, sermon on the position of the church, uh, comparing it with the position of Israel uh, in its relationship with the land in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. And what's significant, I think, about the psalm as it talks about numbers Uh, is the way in which it it implies that Israel isn't necessarily in the land. Now, obviously, in a literal sense, Israel is in the land. But apparently it's possible to be in the land physically, but not really to be in the land spiritually or morally or or something like that. Be careful of the fact um, that you could easily behave the same way as those guys in the wilderness, and therefore you you wouldn't be enjoying God's rest. Physically, literally, materially, you're here in the land of rest, but, but you're not in, in your real beings. 
And Hebrews picks up that notion uh, and warns the church about being in the same position. Uh, it doesn't, that is, say, oh, isn't it terrific that we now, en- we now have entered that rest? Um, they lost it. We've got it. Uh, on the contrary, what Hebrews says is, make sure that you, see that you need to make sure that you lay hold on God's rest. Um, the, the Israelites in the land, after Moses' day, and the Christians that Hebrews is speaking to, are in a way in the same position uh, as people in the wilderness on the way to the land. So again, one can see uh, a reason why a lot of space will be given to the telling of this story. Not because it tells you something um, of historical interest about the people way back then. Well, it may do that, but that's not why the stories are there. The stories are there in order for you to see something of of the dynamic that can obtain between God and God's people, between God's people and God. Numbers then describes the kind of problems that arise uh, in the lives of the people of God, in their relationship with God. It's a series of stories of rebellions and punishments. It includes notes of hope. Um, the Balaam story. Um, I need to say one or two things about Balaam because you asked questions about uh, Balaam. Uh, Balaam is a foreigner. Uh, hello. Okay. Right. Well, when, when Moses wants to change God's mind, what, what did God want to do? Destroy, did you say? God wanted to punish Israel. Um, when Balak wants to change Balaam's mind and wants to get, as it were, God to Balaam to change God's mind, uh, what, does, uh, what does God want to do? Bless. Did you say bless? Yeah, God wanted to bless. So, you can change God's mind when God wants to punish, but you can't change God's mind when he wants to bless. When he wants to bless. Is that good news or is that good news? <laughs> Will that do? Or am I... Are you happy with that? Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, the, whenever you change God's mind, you uh, you're not making God isn't God, God isn't going to be fickle, um, and the as I, as I've suggested already, um, God uh, needs to allow there to be occasions when God says no, I won't change my mind, um, and there are examples in Jeremiah and, and in Amos uh, where that happens. So you can't always get God. Uh, to change his mind about punishing. But it's always worth a try because it sometimes works. 
It's just like your parents. Um, or your children in relation to your parents, if you're old enough. Um, so th- but there are some different dynamics about seeking to get God to change his mind about being gracious, which you won't succeed in, and seeking to get God to change his mind uh, about punishing, which you might um, succeed in. Yep. Right. Other people too. So in some ways, Moses isn't changing, asking God to change his essence, but actually to affirm his essence. That's a good statement, isn't it? God isn't asking Moses. I mean, Moses isn't asking God to change his essence, uh, but rather to act consistently with his essence. Did you say? Um, and and to to he's, he's saying to God, be yourself. It w- it wouldn't be you if you if you did what you just said. Um, yeah. Um, yes, it's good. And that shows how, indeed, the, fri- the phrase changing God's mind tends to make people worried because it sounds as if God is changing his being. It doesn't mean that. No, that's, um, y- you're right. It means uh, it's, ap- it's, it's appealing to God to, to be his real self. Um, yeah, not to, not to be a different person. Whereas if God did say that he was going to bless and then arbitrarily decide not to, that, that would conflict with that notion. Balaam is a foreigner. It doesn't actually say... Somebody asked about his ethnicity. I don't think it tells us about his ethnicity. It simply says he came from uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, Whatever his ethnicity, he's clearly not an Israelite. Um, And so one or two people were um, puzzled at the... How could God um, speak via a foreigner? Excuse me, this is God we're talking about. God can do anything. Um, I'm sorry? Yeah, I can speak through a donkey. Yeah, okay, yeah. And it's just as well for some of us that God can speak through donkeys, is it not? Um, speaking of the donkey, somebody wondered whether this was another example of um, a historical parable. Did God really speak through a donkey? Is the talking donkey parabolic history again? Well, I don't necessarily think so, because in other respects, this is quite a realistic story. You can kind of imagine this story. It's not, it's not a fairy story as a whole. Um, it's, it doesn't read like a parable in that sense, it seems to me. Uh, it's, it's only that, that particular point about the donkey um, that is strange, that doesn't fit with our, with our everyday experience. And that, I, I would say, makes it different from the opening chapters of Genesis that are so full of symbolism and that, that isn't something that reads as if it's taking place literally in our kind of world. Um, so... Uh, um, personally, I would take the naive view that God indeed inspired the donkey to speak. Uh, I don't see any problem about God doing that at all. Um, but if you think that um, this is extremely implausible, um, that's fine. You, uh, I don't think anything kind of hangs on it, but that would be my own view. Um, some people think that Balaam kind of gets a raw deal um, because... God tells him he can go and then tells him off. Um, but, but God only tells him he can go because, God, because Balaam didn't like it, the answer the first time round. Um, and so you can see a kind of negotiation again going on between um, God uh, and Balaam. And uh, so he gets in a spot of trouble, but it's, uh, it's not too tough for him, I don't think, is it really? Um...
I can't see anything else that people asked about Balaam. So we'll proceed. Hmm? Um, could, could it be that Balaam was already used to random supernatural things because he did sorcery part of the time so that it wouldn't have caught him off guard that the donkey was talking or... Well, it did catch him off guard that the donkey was talking, didn't it? I mean, he didn't say, he wasn't kind of, didn't say, oh, well, it's obviously, you know, it's obvious what's going on here. <laughs> it's, it's all, I mean, it almost points, I mean, that's an interesting point about Balaam. Balaam, I mean, it's not as if Balaam is just an ordinary guy. Balaam is actually a diviner of some kind. Um, and so uh, there's, there's a kind of irony about the fact that he then can't see what's, I mean, divi- he's supposed to be able to see what's going on. I mean, he can't see what's going on. Um, so, <coughs> notes of hope in the story. Here is Balaam uh, giving God's blessing to Israel. Note the fact that Israel doesn't know that. Remember, that they're, just, they're at the bottom of the mountain down here. Balaam's blessing them up there. They don't know. Just, rem- just remember, God, God may be declaring blessing upon you. Just because you can't hear somebody declaring blessing on you, doesn't mean you're not going to receive God's blessing. Note the humour in the story. I, I love the fact that they miss the garlic. I mean, these are guys who know about cooking because they know that onions and garlic are absolutely key uh, to a decent meal. But solemnly note the preoccupation with death that runs through the story. People actually dying and rules about death and what you're going to do about death and so on. If you look simply at the stories, uh, then they uh, come in... Uh, the order of, in a kind of stepping, uh, pe- steps order or chiastic order. Have I talked to you about chiasms? I can't remember. Yes, I have, haven't I? Yeah. Um, so uh, you can put together uh, the depiction of the resistance to the toughness of the journey in the beginning of chapter 11 and the complaint about water and food in chapter 21. Um, and, and then the B elements... Um, wishing that they had more when Moses gets angry and gets away with it and in chapter 20 the complaint about water when Moses doesn't get away with it uh, in the sea elements um, Miriam and Aaron complaining about Moses uh, and then the Levites complaining about Moses and Aaron I'll come back to um, Miriam and Aaron in a minute uh, the, uh, the D element at the centre uh, their passage part of which I read at the beginning, uh, they're not believing in the possibility of overcoming uh, the obstacles um, to reaching the promised land. Uh, And it's significant that in the, if you're simply looking at the arrangement of the stories, that one comes at the centre, because that's the decisive story, not for Moses individually, but for the people as a whole. Um, That's the um, event uh, that means that they don't reach the promised land. They're, they're almost there, uh, but they don't get there. I've remembered I was going to show you on the map, so I'll do that. Uh, while it warms up, the, uh, no, note that the, that the people that this story in chapters 13 and 14 uh, talk about are the, are the people who are still a problem when the story is told. Uh, keep, um, 
reminding yourself to think about the people for whom these stories are, are the inspired word of God, the, the people for whom they're written. Um, Uh, here's that question about um, the, it, what, what, uh, about the, the idea of, the, of appealing to Yahweh's essence, to who Yahweh is. The question is, what will keep Yahweh going? Um, what, will keep, what will keep Yahweh in commitment to, to Israel, not casting Israel off? Um, and there's the appeal in the story to Yahweh's compassion uh, and Yahweh's reputation. Um, Uh, so, we started off around here. Here's Goshen in Egypt, where the Israelites um, lived. Uh, there's Ramesses they were involved in the building of. Um, somewhere around here is likely what the stories refer to uh, as the, um, the Red Sea, where the, where the um, miracle happened. Uh, the Red Sea on modern, paps, on modern maps is kind of down the bottom of there somewhere. Those are the two northern arms of what uh, we would now refer to as the Red Sea down there. Uh, but in terms of the story, that's likely what it, what it means by the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. So that's where the, uh, the, the great victory happens. Um, they go down to Mount Sinai down here uh, on, the, on the assumption that the, that the traditional site of Mount Sinai is the right one, though there are at least two others, that uh, one across here uh, and, uh, and another one nearer Kadesh Barnea in the northern part of, the, um, of Sinai, that have been reckoned um, more plausible locations for Sinai, but that the tradition is entirely uh, with regard to the, this ma the mountain towards the bottom of the uh, Sinai Peninsula. Um, so uh, they come down to there, and then back up to the Kadesh Barnea region is where we are when this story is happening. So you can see that you're very close to the, the land. Is, the land starts about here, but not far away from where they need to to get to when the spies are sent up into um, the uh, western part of Palestine uh, and bring the grapes back uh, from Hebron uh, there. Um, and that frightens, that's, that's what frightens everybody. Well, not the grapes, but the other things they say. Uh, and as a result, God says, okay, that's it for you lot, your generation. You're going to um, just go around in circles around here. You can't simply go straight which is what they try to do at the end of Numbers 14. You're going to wander around here till this generation has died out, and I'm going to take the next generation in, uh, and they then make their way to the land, not, not that way, for reasons that are not stated. Um, they don't now go, as it were, the direct way up to the, the western way, but they go across, down into the Rift Valley. This is the, the Rift Valley goes all the way down there, down to Uganda and whatnot. Um, they, they cross uh, the, uh, the, the, the Rift Valley there into the plains of Moab um, on the east side uh, of the Dead Sea uh, in order, in due course, to, to cross over uh, by, by Jericho. Uh, but, the, but, but we never get beyond there. This is, that, this is where the Torah is going to end. There's Mount Nebo, uh, which Moses is going to climb uh, and from which he uh, will see the land uh, but and he'll be able to look from there at the whole land beyond what you can see on this map um, to, to be able to see the whole promised land even though he never sets foot into it. Uh, somebody asked about the practicality of, um, of living in the wilderness 
Um, surely it was impossible for thousands of people to live in the wilderness. Uh, and the answer to that is kind of yes and no. Um, yes, it was impossible, and that's why um, they needed the, the uh, provision of manna and quail um, and water bounding um, miraculously out of rocks um, because it wasn't uh, a natural area for lots and lots of people to live in. God had to provide. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's, not des- it's not like the Sahara Desert um, in the, 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 an area around here. Um, the, there is... Uh, some there, there, there is some water, there is some grass, um, and so if you know your way, uh, if you know how to go about living in an area like that, then you can survive you and your sheep. Um, and I suppose um, it's um, not not very different, maybe, from Southern California before we started stealing water from everywhere else. Um, that is, if you think back to when it was the Kumash Indians and whatnot. There are, I mean, the Arroyo here. Um, there are there are streams that run through here, so it's an area that can support a few people and some animals and so on. Uh, it's not it's not the uh, it's not simply desert. Anybody want to ask anything else about the, the geography about that uh, stuff? Sorry. Why did Mount Sinai move? Well, they always well, it's more the other way around. It's 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 a very long way south. So why would they go all the way down there and not go the obvious way? Can't we find? Well, yeah. I mean, there were actually, two, there were two reasons. I've oversimplified it. That the the the, the reason for the no, there's, there's no. I'm sorry. Ah, start again. The. <coughs> Uh, there's something counterintuitive about making them go all the way down there, uh, it, you know, to, to get to go from there to there, via there, doesn't make sense, right? So you'd be inclined to, to assume that even God would lead them that way. Uh, and then there is the, um, there's the stress on Kadesh Barnea uh, in the story, so, uh, maybe that, so people said, well, maybe that's a more plausible place to reckon that the mountain was. Uh, so that's one sort of lo- that's that's the logic for finding a mountain somewhere in the northern part of Sinai. It just isn't so far to walk. Um, but then there is uh, around here there are some some volcanic type mountains um, and uh, some uh, people thought that you could make good sense of the Sinai story if you reckon that there was a volcano erupting around there, that would explain all the stuff about fire and cloud and things like that. Um, and so that's what tempted people to, to reckon in terms of a mountain across there where there are some mountains of that, some, uh, mountains of that kind. The key theological issue at that, in, that D, uh, in that story at the centre, in chapters 13 to 14, um, is what I've called here Israel's long-term security and short-term vulnerability. Um, and uh, the story, uh, like this Sinai story, uh, illustrates how God is committed to Israel forever. Um, but that doesn't mean that every generation can get away with anything. A particular generation can get cast out. Um, 
you can see the same process uh, in the history of the church. In the early centuries of the church, the um, homeland uh, of the church, and was that, well, actually, yeah, I almost pointed on there, that the homeland of the church um, is, is the eastern Mediterranean. It's, it's, it's all that area around there. Um, that's where uh, um, Jim's heroes all worked around there, didn't they? Um, you know, Chrysostom and Origen and um, Athanasius and all those guys, that's where they lived. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the, and the, the northern side of the Mediterranean uh, up there uh, is, is where the churches are that are mentioned in Paul's letters and in the book of Revelation. Um, uh, but, but within a matter of centuries, the church has virtually died out uh, in the eastern Mediterranean. Um, it vir- virtually doesn't exist uh, now. Um, and uh, you could say something similar about uh, uh, the, the church in Europe um, and the way in which in the, uh, in the 16th century uh, there's the centre uh, of, um, of the church and that's where the Reformation happens and now the church in Europe is as good as dead. Um, and uh, the church in the USA is going the same way. Uh, the, uh, the centre of Christian faith now uh, lies in, in Africa. Um, and uh, uh, may uh, quite likely uh, increase in its um, significance in Asia, uh, but will quite likely, as far as one can tell, um, it will almost die out uh, in the West. Um, God's faithful to the church in the long term, but particular regions, generations, can lose their place in God's purpose. The people of God have a long-term security, but a short-term vulnerability. Um, three kinds of problem that I've listed uh, just towards the end of that um, middle section. Wishing that they'd never been delivered from Egypt. Going back on um, their redemption. The kind of converse, not believing that they can reach their destiny. Um, and then complaining at the leadership, which is responsible for both those facts. Both for them being brought out of Egypt and for them not being able to reach Canaan. Um, and um, and that, that, that complaining at the leadership is one of the uh, aspects of the story that... Um, I can't remember precisely what it was that somebody said in their... Po- oh, yes. The, the, somebody said in their posting, talked about the possibility of trusting God and of debating with God. The problem with these stories is they don't debate with God. They, they, they never talk to God in any of these stories. They complain to Moses and Aaron. Uh, you can get away with anything if you just talk to God. You can't necessarily get away with it if you don't. Is, uh, is a paradoxically a, um, a fact that uh, is illustrated by the stories. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I don't see why they would need his permission. Well, God just talks, or he says, you know, um, specifically with Miriam and Aaron, um, and they would sell the people made fun of, you know, this is, this is what I've chosen, you know. So I guess it, it could be implied, I guess, where I, mm. I found it implied that 
that God was like, you know, Moses is, is my guy, you go through Moses, and then... I don't think it says anywhere that they go through Moses. And the, um, I mean, the, 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 there's that great account in Exodus 33 of the, um, the meeting tent um, where, where anybody can go um, uh, and meet with God. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Um, now, that's talking about individuals, but I would thought if that applies to individuals, it applies to, uh, to the people. Um, yeah, I, I would have thought so. Uh, that reminds me. Oh yes, uh, Miriam and all that. Um, why does Miriam get a tough deal? Um, is it? It's not fair to Miriam. It's these guys again. Um, two things. Well, two or three things that people usually say about this. Um, the first is uh, suggesting it's significant. Uh, that the way the story works, it says that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Um, now, it's um, at least noteworthy that Miriam gets referred to first, which um, uh, perhaps implies that, that she's, as it were, the, ringle- the leader, uh, and therefore that's one reason why she gets into um, more trouble. A second is that because Aaron is a priest, um, it's actually better for Miriam... Uh, to get into trouble because then Aaron can um, do his priestly thing on her behalf whereas if Aaron gets into trouble there's nobody to do the priestly thing uh, a third though is then well uh, maybe this is a fourth a th- uh, uh, maybe there's be a fourth in a minute uh, a third one is not to be too overwhelmed by the nature of the chastisement that's put upon Miriam uh, she is to she's got, she's, she's got this skin disease she can't be inside the camp for a week well, okay, perhaps she likes being on her own. It's not kind of terrible. Um, it's not a terrible thing that happens to her. Uh, but then we, we tend to interpret all these stories in individual personalist, personalistic terms. And that's partly why, why we get into trouble. Because uh, a question that arises is, what's, what's the significance? Again, think in terms of the story uh, being um, read and listened to and thought about later on. What do Miriam and Aaron and Moses stand for? Um, And it's at least a plausible suggestion that Miriam and Aaron and Moses stand for uh, prophecy and priesthood and Torah. Uh, If if you are Israel later on, then the question of the relationship between Torah, prophecy and priesthood um, is a really important one. Um, the, The... it's very easy for prophecy and priesthood to be operating in a way that ignores Torah. Um, There are lots of false prophets and lots of priests who offer false kinds of sacrifices and go wrong and so on. Uh, And if you look at it from that perspective, then what the story does is affirm the priority of Torah for which Moses stands uh, over against priesthood for which Aaron stands and prophecy for which Miriam stands. A solemn thing about the end of that section, about the, the, um, the, the, the Balaam story, <coughs> uh, followed by the um, people going astray with um, having sexual relations with the people of Moab in chapter 25. Um, 
when, when God has just been rescuing them from the Moabites, the Moabites wanted to cause them trouble and they fail. Then the Israelites give in, find their own way of getting into trouble with the Moabites. Um, and the, um, the pattern, the sequence, uh, is one that we've seen before. It's a sequence, a pattern, uh, that we've seen in the account of God giving them instructions about how to build the tabernacle in chapters 25 to 31 of Exodus, followed by the account of them making the gold calf at the bottom of the mountain. And it actually comes again in the account of the setting up of the priesthood, and then the story of Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire uh, in Leviticus 8 and 9 and then 10. Um, and it's grievous in particular that in Numbers 22 to 25 you get that sequence because you've had the sorting things out in connection with the rebellion in chapters 13 and 14 and the chance for that, for that generation to die out. And, and we've got a new start again. It's also like the um, new start after the flood. Uh, but every time there's a new start, uh, then things get spoilt. Uh, there's been no progress, actually. You can let a whole generation die out, but it didn't actually get you anywhere. Uh, Numbers 26 to 36, the last chunk of the uh, chapter, preparations for life in the land. Um, it is, in a sense then, but only in a sense, a new people. It's a new generation. Uh, there are some compromises involved uh, in the, some, some of the tellings of the stories and the laws that are told. Um, and there are voices from the margin that appear. We've had Balaam and we get the celebrated daughters of Zelophehad, who are some ladies who say, it's not fair! And Yahweh says, yeah, it's right really when you think about that, isn't it? Um... Numbers. Let me see if there's anything else that I ought to say and make a comment on. No, I think it would be more interesting to have Tana tell us her Miriam, read her Miriam letter to us. And then where's Virgiliana? Would you read yours in a minute as well? Have you got it? Yeah. Right, great, okay. If you could like to find it and Tana's going to read hers, then you can read yours. Okay. Just right here. Just right here, out loud. I'll hold it. Go on. Moses, alas, even from the beginning, the thread of life was upon you. You have always been one to go where others feared to journey, and even now you pave the way for us to follow. I remember when you were just a small, giggling, helpless baby, in jeopardy of, fall in jeopardy of falling into the hands of the one who would end such beauty. Mom, being the grand woman that she was, decided to risk that life and hoped that a woman's compassion could outweigh the might of a king. 
She placed you in the basket and sent you floating down the stream, and she was right. The pharaoh's daughter took you as her own. I, I, always being one to be just slightly behind your swifter path, and being ever as much intent on witnessing such adventures, followed along next to you from the banks of grass on drier ground. The pharaoh's daughter spotted me and asked that I would send for mom to raise you. Therefore, from the beginning, you and I, our lives have been intertwined to see that God's blessings would be heralded to the people. We've been through much, you and I, both as sister and brother, and as leaders of a great people. For all our weaknesses and shortcomings, our sufferings and losses, nothing can compare to the wonder it has wrought inside me to, of seeing the Lord our God truly conquer and provide for his people. How blessed we are indeed, and how blessed I am that God would see fit to keep me always only a short distance from you, so that I might behold what it is he is using you to bring about for the sake of his people and for his world. Soon this river of life will whisk you beyond the realm of my vision, as it did once when you ascended the mount and God's glory covered you in a thick cloud. Then I waited for you to join, rejoin us, wondering in total awe, always jealous of what you were beholding that I was not allowed to. For the first time, dear brother, you will have to wait for me to join you there. But don't worry, I am always quick to follow at your heel. Even now, you will gain the blessing of rest and peace before me. But as usual, I too will finally be blessed with what, with that which you have first been blessed. May God be with you on this new voyage, and may his face shine upon you now, even to its fullest perfection. I love you, my brother, and I shall miss you. I suppose I will only have the Lord to follow now, until we meet again. Miriam. Thank you. Come on, here we are. Dear Moses, I have often wondered why Yahweh chose you to be the one person he would visit directly. Why not me, or Aaron, or anyone else? Yahweh may have spoken to me and Aaron in some ways, but not in the special, exclusive way God communicated with you. You're a lucky man, and I've been jealous at times, thinking about the privileged access you have to God. Yahweh seems not to mind playing favorites, but then again, maybe that's not quite it. It surprises me that after all the miracles you had seen, all the wonders Yahweh performed through you, that you would have doubted, even just that one time, at Meribah. Perhaps that was why Yahweh was so harsh with you. Of all people, you had no right to doubt that God would indeed bring forth water from the rock. But you did. You broke faith. In a sense, I'm glad you did, because it lessens my jealousy. <laughs> even you had to suffer God's justice and punishment for your sin, just as I did. Your failure reminds us uh, reminds us all that no human being is perfect in righteousness. At the same time, I am sorry for you that you will not live to enter the promised land. But take heart, knowing your children will live there. And because of the work Yahweh has done through you, they will know who Yahweh is. They will be able to follow his teaching, to live and prosper, as Yahweh has promised to those who keep his commandments. Blessed be Yah, your sister, Miriam. Thank you. You can applaud them. They were good, weren't they?
Uh, right, page 110. War in Numbers and elsewhere in the Torah. Um, I liked the way in which somebody picked up Numbers chapter 21. Um, rather horrified at the, I think this person was, at the kind of negotiation that goes on between uh, God uh, and Israel here. Um, uh, a neat example um, of, again, of that, um, that notion of God um, making himself vulnerable, adapting himself. Um, the Canaanites from Arad... Um, I can't resist keeping pointing to the maps. Now we've got the map there. It's uh, it's uh, it's 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 good fun. Arad is um, just along there uh, between Beersheba and the um, and the bottom of the Dead Sea. So so obviously when they're going that way, you can see why the Arad guys are the first people that they uh, amongst the first people they come across. The people of Arad attack the Israelites and take some of them captives. That's not the kind of thing that's supposed to happen, is it? Then Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into our hands, then we will utterly destroy their towns. Um, and that's the first time that the idea of utterly destroying anybody comes. Uh, it's, a human, it's another of these human ideas. So, obviously, God is going to say, no, you're not supposed to do that kind of thing. But actually, the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and handed over the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their towns. So, the place was called Horamah, the, uh, the word for um, that annihilation, utter destruction, um, is the word Herem. Um, and so, that's the, uh, uh, the link that's being made by, uh, with the name of the town, Horamah, um, A-H on the end of a word like that, it's just, just a kind of ending. Uh, so the, uh, the consonants, which are what counts in a Hebrew word, are the same in the word kerem, the word for annihilation, um, utterly destroying, and the name of this place, Hormah. Well now, um, to the top, the top of that page, war in numbers and elsewhere in the Torah. What is war and what bothers, what bothers us about it? War involves solving group conflicts, especially in relation to sovereignty over peoples and land, by violence, rather than, for instance, by discussion in the context of law. War usually involves killing people. And this especially bothers people in the modern age, especially in nations whose own existence is based on war, or that frequently go to war, like us. Note that it is only in the modern age, it's only in the last 200 years, um, that, that war has been felt to be a problem. Um, in, the sense of, um, in the sense that until then, it was accepted much more as a reality of how um, life is in the world. Um, and the wars in the Old Testament were, were not felt to be a problem by anybody, as they aren't felt to be a problem in the New Testament. Whereas for us, they've become a huge problem. I can, I can think of four possible Christian attitudes to war. One, we are called to peacemaking, the Mennonite view. Two, the question is whether a war is just, 
which is the Catholic and Reformed view. Three, we haven't really thought about it, which is the Pentecostal view. Uh, Four, uh, we accept it, which is the New Testament's view. That's not what you thought was the New Testament's view. Um, But uh, you find a number of references uh, in the New Testament uh, to the kind of events that we read about in the Torah and in Joshua uh, that don't suggest that the New Testament has any unease about it, notwithstanding Jesus telling people that they should go and be peacemakers. So, Hebrews 11. What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. (coughs) These are all people who did that kind of thing. They're all examples of faith in doing that kind of thing in Hebrews 11. Um, There is the the saintly Stephen um, who uh, will die with uh, prayer on his lips that his uh, assailants um, will be forgiven, the prayer that his master had prayed, but who in the middle of the speech, but th- that for reasons that seem slightly obscure, uh, are what causes them to lynch him, um, refers to the way in which our ancestors brought the, te- the, the tent of testimony into the promised land with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. Stephen doesn't seem to have any kind of unease about that process whereby the Israelites got into the land. Um, And uh, the same sort of assumption is implied by the way that Paul talks in Romans 13 when he talks uh, about uh, rulers... um, as God's servants for your good. The authority uh, is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. It's just, uh, as I talk about this now, it's, um, it's reminded me of something else that, ra- that somebody raised in their posting, as to why does God speak through people to other people? Why doesn't God speak to people directly? Um, and um, uh, I don't know the answer to that question. But it's very clear throughout. I mean, the Bible doesn't t- just takes takes for granted that God speaks through other pe- through to us through other people through us to uh, other people, um, and it also assumes that God works through us. So when it's a question of bringing judgment upon the Canaanites, it's quite happy with the idea that God uses the Israelites, whereas that ma- that's come to make us feel uncomfortable. In the Pentateuch, though, war is not one thing, as is the case now. There are various kinds of war. So first there is liberative war, when uh, Abraham goes off to uh, rescue Lot, when Lot has been kidnapped. Uh, Well, what do you think Abraham should have done? There is passive war, um, which you've got particularly clearly in Exodus 14. That is, the Israelites don't do anything, they just watch God um, do something. God is the one who looks after the violence. Um, and in that way, the Exodus, the story of the Red Sea, for instance, um, is like the account of God's violence um, in Revelation chapter, in, in, in Revelation, in God bringing judgment. It's, there's no human involvement in bringing judgment. And actually, it's the same uh, in the prophets. The prophets don't have any 
vision for Israel being involved um, in violence. They assume that God is going to sort things out. Um, somebody in their posting raised a question about whether God got more um, easygoing. That wasn't the word that the person used, but some word like that, as time went on. Um, did God get more merciful or some such uh, expression? Tolerant. Did God become more tolerant? Because God doesn't slay towns today. Well, no, God doesn't slay towns today. But in the, according to the New Testament, God is going to send an awful lot of people to hell, which is something that God didn't think of in Old Testament times, only came to think of in New Testament times. So I think you could make a case for saying God got less tolerant um, as time went on rather than more tolerant. Passive war. Uh, self-defensive or punitive, self-defensive and punitive war, um, of which the battle with the Amalekites in chapter 17 was an example. Earthly war mirroring war in heaven, um, and uh, numbers that numbers chapter 21 uh, passage, where the Israelites are defending defending themselves against the Canaanites. Uh, but are also uh, means of um, taking punishment upon them. The previous chapter, uh, number four, war avoided. Uh, the Israelites need to go through the land of the Edomites, um, who are uh, just above the Moabites, really, on the map, in order to get to the land. Um, and they say, uh, oh, let us pass through your land. We don't want to fight with you. And the Edomites say, uh, if you come this way, we'll kill you. Um, and they uh, come out against the Israelites. So the Israelites turn away and go a different way. They don't. They don't now you'd have thought, given the stories about the Israelites, that they just take on these Edomites and kill them. But instead, they go a different way. Um, there's what I've called defensive aggrandizing uh, war. When there's a similar story about the Israelites and King Sihon of the Amorites in Numbers chapter 21, where again they're asking for uh, Sihon, this is for further up, and, and the Amorites on that. Now it's up, it's, it's um, near a, um, uh, sort of where it says Debon and um, Heshbon. Heshbon was, is that, that kind of area. Um, The Israelites are again saying, let us come through your land. We won't steal anything. Oh, we've heard that before. Um, and Sihon, uh, the king of the Amorites, takes the same attitude as the Edomites had taken uh, and attacks the Israelites. Uh, but this time the Israelites don't go another way. They slay, uh, they slaughter uh, Sihon and the Amorites. Um, so it, it was a defensive war. They weren't, they weren't looking for a battle. Uh, but they were quite prepared then to gain as a result of it. Um, number six, aggressive, punitive war. Uh, that's the kind of thing that the Israelites are involved in, in occupying Canaan itself, and what God commissions them to um, in Deuteronomy. Um, and the basis for that war is not merely that the Israelites um, uh, are, that God's decided to give this land to the Israelites, so tough for the Canaanites being in the wrong place at the wrong moment. Um, the basis for what's going on is that the peoples that the Israelites are going to attack um, are guilty. Remember, it said, God had said to Abraham that it wasn't fair to give the people the land in that time because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But now it is full. 
uh, and God is prepared to use the Israelites as his um, police characters, as his police, um, uh, in order to bring judgment upon these peoples. Now, maybe they are no worse than anybody else. Um, maybe, they might have been, maybe they might have been let off. Um, but, they have no, but they can't complain with regard to their own position. Punish, pushing, punishing them facilitates God's purpose to renew the world, partly by making sure that they don't lead Israel astray. And then finally, there is competitive war, the kind of thing Deuteronomy 20 describes, which is the kind of thing then you find stories about when you've got the Israelites fighting the Philistines um, in 1 Samuel. Uh, here are the Philistines uh, in danger of taking over the Israelites. Uh, so what is Saul supposed to do? Are the Israelites supposed to lie there and be trampled on? Well, maybe they are, but Saul evidently doesn't take that view. Um, the reason why the Israelites want to have kings is in order that they'll be able to fight battles like that rather than be trampled on. Uh, and the story assumes that because the people of God live their life in the world, um, that's the way that things have to go on. Um, if you're going to be a nation, then you're inevitably involved in fighting. If you're going to be a king, you're inevitably involved in leading uh, a people in fighting. If you're a pacifist, you couldn't be president. Um, the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. You can't be a pacifist king. Now, why would God have wanted these stories in Scripture? The way Scripture sometimes helps us find God's mind is by providing us with various ways of looking at an issue so that we can imagine working with them or we can dream of others. What I'm suggesting in a way is that these various significances of war are a bit like the various significances of Sabbath and tithing. They help you to think round an issue and to formulate um, a way of looking at it. But whereas we don't mind so much what, what the scriptures say about Sabbath and tithing, uh, we mind what it says about war. Now, when we find that we don't like what it says in scripture, that's probably a sign that it's got something important to say to us. Um, and I wonder whether our unease with war in the Old Testament uh, reflects unresolved issues in our spirits. <coughs> Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. Um, and, uh, and clearly uh, the uh, war has a huge place in our, if I may say our, as a mere resident alien, um, story. <laughs> Um, the United States of America would not exist were it not for, uh, the, for wars uh, against Native Americans, for wars against the British, um, the, the Civil War, the First World War, uh, the Korean War, the Vietnamese War, um, the Iraqi War, the, Afghan, the, Afghanistan, the Afghanistan War. War is very deeply uh, written into the uh, history um, and the consciousness of the USA, I suggest probably more than any other nation in the world. Um, and, um, and that's something that naturally we have a need to think our way uh, through, to have an attitude to. Um, but not something that it seems to me that either the nation or the church has done the kind of reflecting on that we need to do. 
Uh, and so uh, it is an unresolved issue in our spirit as a people. What the st- these stories in the Old Testament uh, indicate that war isn't always wrong. Um, there are occasions when war is okay. The question for us maybe is whether we can recognize Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua without giving license to uh, recognize them as God's word, without giving license to ethnic cleansing. That's an issue that people um, often raise anyway. It's as if the stories that there are in the Pentateuch and in Joshua are uh, inclined to encourage people to go and make war. Wars that they might not otherwise make. Now, if I state it that way, I suggest that that's an extremely unlikely um, scenario. That is, I find it very difficult to believe that there were ever people who weren't going to make war, read the Old Testament, and then said, oh, we're supposed to go make war, let's go and make some. Uh, it's, um, the relation, if there is a relationship between these stories about war and what nations do, uh, it's that, first of all, nations decide what they're going to do, and then they use the Bible to justify, to provide an excuse for what they're going to do anyway. It's, it's not that they had no plans to, say, go in for the Crusades, uh, but read the Bible and they decides, on that basis decide the Crusades would be a good idea. The, um, the prominence of Israel, or the place of Israel itself engaging in, law, in, in war, uh, is actually rather smaller, I think, in the Old Testament as a whole than it is in the... Um, uh, than is the magnitude of the questions that it raises uh, for us. As I've mentioned already, the prophets uh, have no vision for Israel engaging in war. They have a big vision uh, for God sorting out uh, the empires of the day, uh, a big vision for God working through the kind of processes that the empires, the nations that are themselves involved in when they're engaged in war-making. God will work through that. But never do the prophets say, you Israelites go and put down the Babylonians or go and fight the Moabites or whatever. They have no commissions of that kind at all. Anything of that kind is, uh, appears only in this story, well, no, not only, uh, appears mainly in this story from uh, Exodus to Joshua. The other place it appears is those stories about Saul and David and so on. But that means that for the average Israelite, um, wars uh, in which you take on other peoples are part of the past and they're not part of the present. They're part of the past in the story that you read. They are explicitly, um, if you listen to your prophets, not, uh, not expected to be part of your present. Uh, and what, that's, what that suggests is that the account of the Israelites coming to um, annihilate the Canaanites, in as far as they didn't, isn't as far as they did. Of course, actually, they didn't as you discover when you read the stories in Joshua and Judges. But insofar as they did, they did um, fight battles against other peoples in order to gain possession of the land, that's part of the um, one-time, once-for-all history of the past. It's not something that, that impinges on the present. It's not something that Israelites in later generations ever expected themselves to be involved in. Um, and that makes it one with the sense in which the scriptural narrative as a whole is commonly a once-for-all story. Uh, one of my PhD students, uh, when we were talking about this, th- this issue last quarter, uh, helped me to um, 
articulate the nature of the problem with regard to our interpretation of these stories, I think, when he said, it's as if when we read the Old Testament, we're always asking the question, what would Yahweh do, as opposed to what would Jesus do? And we assume that the stories are there to tell us what Yahweh would do, which is also what we would do. Now, actually, it doesn't follow that what Yahweh would do, or at least that Yahweh once did, is something that we should always do. But that's a hermeneutical assumption that's common in our Christian culture. Things that happened are there because they're there to be examples of what we should do or what we shouldn't do. But that's not why, there's no basis for saying that the stories about how the Israelites got into the land are there for that kind of reason. Um, It's more likely, it makes more sense to assume that they're part of the once-for-all nature of the scriptural story. They're part of what God did once, but they're not something that happens um, repeatedly or again, because by their very nature they only needed to happen once. The death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all. Christ doesn't need to keep dying, and you don't have to die in that sense that Christ did. There was something once for all about Christ's dying. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 10. Um, the, the Hebrews passage. <coughs> Unlike the other high priests, Jesus has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. The priestly activity of Jesus is not something that we carry on doing. It's something that Jesus did once for all. 1 Peter. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Jesus didn't need to die as the righteous person frequently, and you don't need to die as the righteous person in order to put yourself right with God. Jesus did it once for all, and that means you don't have to do it. And the way in which God made promises to Abraham, uh, brought the Israelites out of Egypt, took them into the land, and used them as a a means of bringing punishment upon the Canaanites in order to gain possession of the land, is part of the once-for-all story of Scripture. Um, How far particular incidents uh, uh, suggest patterns for behavior is something that you have to work out on the basis uh, of other things that Scripture tells you. And the very way, for instance, in which the prophets don't talk about Israel as having a role in, in, in fighting war, suggests that the prophets are assuming that that's something once for all of the past as part of what God was doing. So there's no, there's no basis for um, making those stories in the early part of the Old Testament uh, something that is, uh, is designed to shape the activity um, of the people of God or of a secular nation nowadays, that's to ignore the sense in which they are part of the once-for-all nature of the story. <coughs> Maybe one final thought. Yes, we should, be th- we should be scared by these stories because if there's anybody in these stories we have to identify with, it's not the Israelites, it's the Canaanites. <coughs> the stories about God's judgment are ones that ought to make us scared because we, like the Canaanites, might be due for annihilation. Oh, what a way to end. And I'm sorry I'm ending there. But at least I'm going to go and climb on my bicycle and go and boil the kettle in order to make tea for for some of you who are going to come and drink it. Yes, good. 
because Christine has also been to go and spread the scones. So we'll have some more cheerful conversation there shortly. See you on Monday otherwise. And we'll do scones again on Monday for those who want to come twice or can't come tonight.